Hello, and welcome to Diffuse Tap with Kenny Estes and Isla Krem. In today's episode, we are going to be doing a tap dance with Luba Leseva, who's going to be talking about investor relations strategies. Welcome. Glad you could join us today. So to get things kicked off, just a little bit of what to expect. Um, most of you have been here before, but those who haven't, we'll briefly talk about uh, this event and diffuse, and then we're going to have a 15 minute or so fireside chat with woman of the hour, Luba. And then we're going to do two more rounds of breakout rooms, similar to what you just did, and then do a wrap up at the end. Um, bit of a special treat at the end, we're actually going to be renaming this event because it's a massive trademark violation. So we are going to crowdsource and give you some options. So if you want any say on how this thing is going to be called from now on, stick around. So Diffuse, briefly, um, what we do, we do fun in a box. So we find folks that are largely first-time managers um, in alternative private equity typically, and we help them work through the pre-launch process of, okay, what are you investing in? How are you underwriting? How are you screening? Who are your service providers? All of the nuts and bolts of running a fund. And then post-launch, we effectively run a lot of the day-to-day. So we try to act as the COO, CFO, um, manage deal pipeline, make sure that process is followed, coordinate service providers, because really all of the general partners on our funds, any minute they're not spent, that's not spent actually executing the thesis is a waste of time. So we help out with that. One of them, and I'm not sure he's on today, um, is Iran Capital, or Aaron Capital as it were. It's a litigation finance fund, which is focusing on public service entities. So if anybody has any interest in litigation finance, let us know. Um, you're in this event, soon to be renamed potentially today, called Consume. Uh, the idea is three quarters of the time we network in small groups. A quarter of it, we have people like Luba in, who's going to give us some uh, interesting insights on something we think will be of interest to the audience. And having mentioned her twice, I'll now mention her a third time. Uh, Luba Leseva. Luba, would you mind doing an intro for yourself? Because I will not do you justice. Hi, everyone. Apologies to everyone that's on the West Coast, and this is bright and early, but I hope you've got your coffee ready. I am Luba Leseva. I'm the founder of L4C, which is an investor relations agency that works with VCs and startups to help them manage their investors and raise money, which uh, I hear is interesting to some of the audience. Prior to launching L4C, I headed up investor relations at Palantir, where I raised over $1.2 billion. Yes, that's billion with a B over a span of 18 months. Prior to that, I was based in Abu Dhabi working for a large sovereign wealth fund where I invested about $200 million in the venture capital asset class that was split half between startups and half between venture capital funds. Prior to that, I was a private equity and natural resources investor based primarily out of Sydney, Australia, although I was always working for US companies. If you want to know anything about the routes between Sydney and LA, or Sydney and Houston on any airline of the world, I'm your woman. <laughs> uh, right now as well, I run a syndicate um, on AngelList that invests in startups founded by Palantir alumni. So you may have seen me doing some stuff out and about regarding that. That's kind of me. Love it. Appreciate it. Non-trivial amount of uh, investor relationing, as it were. So we're going to ask you a bunch of questions. Uh, the, the, the mastermind of all this, of course, is Isla Krem, who is also going to kick off the, uh, the, the, the Q&A. So Isla, over to you. 
Yeah, thank you. And uh, thanks for coming on. Really excited to have you on today. Actually, really nice turnout as well. Um, but let's kick off with the first question, which is what are some of the biggest mistakes that VCs make when it comes to managing their LPs? I think the largest mistake is not understanding what else your LP has in their portfolio. I think most VCs understand the concept of investing in a portfolio and having multiple startups, but your LP also has multiple things in their portfolio. So you really have to understand what those are. So if, for example, your LP is a large institutional fund manager that's got hundreds of billions of dollars under management, then the person you're speaking to probably heads up or is part of the VC team, but uh, they're comparing you to a whole bunch of other venture capital funds. Who else is in that wider team? When they go to investment committee, what are the other deals that are presented? Are they private equity funds? Are they solely VC funds? Think about that because you actually have to fight for capital allocations against that. Um, if you are, If your LP is a high net worth individual or a family office, you're actually competing against public market investments, bonds, uh, whatever's in their 401k that they got from their job when they were 23. Um, you've got individual real estate investments and developments. And so really think about what that individual or that family office wants out of this relationship. Are they doing this for purely financial reasons? Do they want more operating uh, context on what you're doing? Are they doing this um, to kind of feel fun and young and part of the action again? Think closely about what your LP doing is doing and ask them, what else is going on in your portfolio? You know, if there's a, a major FX crisis in Europe, ask them what their European exposure is because it's relevant to their mood and their portfolio performance and the things that they're going to be worried about with you. That, that's great. And a natural segue of that is, uh, you know, you have that information, you get the investor in the door. Um, what, hap- what, what makes them high maintenance? High maintenance investors, you hear about them all the time. What makes them high maintenance? How do you manage with high maintenance investors? So it's not just a, a major time, time suck for, for no benefit, especially if they, you know, they haven't invested recently. Um, one of the interesting things about investors that end up being high maintenance is you have no idea who they're going to be at the onset. It could be a high net worth individual that made a super quick decision and was great all through the fundraising process. And now they're calling you every six weeks and wanting to just chat on the phone for an hour and a half. And you're like, I have a portfolio to run. I have new investments to make. And, you know, I also have a family and a life. Why are you here? Um, It could be a professional fund manager and you get palmed off to an analyst or an associate that asks just the most detailed minutia on the portfolio performance. And what you really have to figure out is the real question that they're asking. Because the real question is not, I want to talk to you for an hour and a half every six weeks. And the real question is not, I want a site visit to every one of your portfolio companies every six months. The, the real question is, I don't feel secure with this investment. I'm nervous about something. So figure out what that something is. Is it something else that's going on in their portfolio? Have they had another fund that just blew up due to interpersonal conflicts? Did they have a direct investment that went under because of an instance of fraud? Figure out their real concern. Um, and that goes back to asking around what's what's going on in their portfolio. And once you figure out what their real concern is, you can spend your time addressing that. And you'll find that the relationship will get a lot better. The investor will need a lot less of your time Um, And you'll also be able to use it as a useful gateway to introduce them to other members of your team of like, hey, we just brought someone new on board. I know you always like to meet the new members of the team. 
I'm going to set up a call with you with our new principal. It's a great opportunity to get that, the work of that relationship a little bit more distributed within your team, but it's also a gateway to fundraising in the future. One of the key things that emerging managers don't realize before they raise their fund is that you're always going to be fundraising. Every investor update is an opportunity for you to improve that relationship. You're always in sales mode with your startups, with your LPs, um, with potential new portfolio investments. You always have to be doing a good job and trying to convince people to either give you money or take your money. So use those investor updates as a sales opportunity. Use them to reaffirm your investors about how well your thesis is going, what's the performance like, and what you're planning to do in the future. And that kind of segues nicely into um, something here from the audience. Chris Aronson is asking, um, do you know if large LPs actually still use the modern portfolio theory um, when they select their investments, or do you see them having a different mode of investing these days? Some do, some don't. I will say that for very large LPs, so sovereign wealth funds, endowments, there is a strategy office up on top that makes the allocation decisions between asset classes. Um, and then the head of each asset class kind of has to have that, shall we say, fiery discussion as to why their asset class should get more allocation than the financial model spits out. And there's a little bit of back and forth there. But at the start of every year, allocation tends to be done on a calendar year basis. At the start of every year, the head of that asset class will just get given a number. Hey, you head up VC funds, you have $200 million to invest this year. Um, and there's not much that they can do about that final number. Um, and so they really just have to find the best funds that come to the market in that 12-month period to fill that 200. That's really fascinating. So this is upfront every year they determine it. So at the end of the year, probably one of our institutional investors, the first questions to ask is how much is left of your budget, more or less, right? Yeah, and um, how much sway they have. Um, and so that's why sometimes it's helpful to launch a fundraise in the middle of the year, because if someone has blown through their allocation, um, you know, if you didn't get to chat to them early enough, you can try and get allocation from there next year. So sort of get a January close with them. Interesting. And how does that change? Obviously, you know, uh, March of this year, uh, any, any allocation that was set in January probably should be reconsidered. Um, how, when you're talking to investors, how does that, have you, have you seen that play out? How does that, how does that interaction uh, with ongoing or kind of live investments uh, change as, as the market conditions do? I didn't see an awful lot of movement in allocation insofar as I could tell. And part of the reason was there wasn't any new figures to type in to a, a model, right? Models are garbage in, garbage out. If you don't have good quality data to feed into it, you're not going to get a good end result. So a lot of um, sort of strategy offices more or less allocated the same, but may have put a little bit of a break on it. So like, hey, you still have your allocation, but we're not going to let you spend more than 30% um, in the next six months. Maybe we'll let, it, let you roll it over if you don't spend it this year. But there was sort of a, a less formal um, reclassification of investment committees just getting more conservative. Every time a new fund goes to an investment committee, they have to, the, the person sponsoring the, the deal has to prove that not only was the performance of this fund manager great in the past, but it's able to be replicated in the future. If the future is seen to be looking very differently to the past, 
that's just a hard to sell. You know, that portfolio manager has to say like, oh yeah, sure. They had a really high risk strategy where they lost 19 out of 20 deals in their portfolio. Their 20th deal was 500X. And I totally think it's believable that they'll be able to do this again, despite or because of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. That gets a hard to sell. Uh, I'm sure there were more like liquid asset classes that were just an easier sell earlier in the year. Let's put all our money in bonds. It'll be great. <laughs> I'd say so too. So I guess that, that kind of also dovetails into one question. You, you have a lot of knowledge and, and a lot of um, VCs wonder like, okay, what would I actually need to do to get somebody like you on board? At what point does it make sense to get uh, an investor relations manager on board to who kind of brings this level of experience and, and kind of nuance and finesse and, and a bit of like a hand glove kind of situation to each conversation with NLP versus just bulldozing in. Um, at what point do I need a, a, do I need a Luba? It's a delicate balance. You have to bring someone on board who handles investor relations early enough so that um, it doesn't feel like a bait and switch to the LP. Now, if the LP has had a direct relationship with you for seven years and committed to two funds and you turn around and you're like, by the way, going forward, you'll only be talking to Luba over here they're going to feel a little cheated. But you also can't bring someone on board super, super early because you as the founding partner really know more about the fund than anyone else. And in the first few years, you don't really know what it's going to look like. You have a thesis, but you still have to prove it out. Um, And you're going to find yourself tweaking it a little bit. You're going to find yourself micro-correcting. And so whoever talks to investors has to be the person that's handling the portfolio in their hands day to day. You'll just have the most up-to-date knowledge and the most correct knowledge. It's a fine balance. You, you talked in uh, you, the the first couple of years not knowing what they're doing, but kind of having a thesis. So that's interesting. So that's a good segue to Dave McClure's question, which is, do you find the most non-institutional LPs are making rational investment decisions or is it uh, a little bit irrational in how they're approaching it? It's more about the story and the person and all those things and the actual asset they're going after. What I find is within family offices, so like ultra high net worth individuals that actually have a professional um, operating arm for their financial investments, um, there will be a strategy manager at the top, so the head of portfolio allocation or the CEO of the family office, who will make very rational decisions uh, allocating between the asset classes. They may not always look very rational from the outside, because you're like, hang on, our portfolio is like 70% real estate this year. Like, oh yeah, that's because we're buying a waterfront home in Hawaii for the individual this year. Like that's just a big chunk of, mm-hmm. of how much we're planning to spend. So that may not appear rational, but it is in the context of what, of what this family office needs to achieve in this year or this three-year period. Within the asset classes, um, I find that sometimes there will be a fund manager that the family office just loves. Um, And then if you're that fund manager, your job is just to not say anything bad. You've got the deal. It's yours to not screw up. Um, And if you're not that person, I'm sure it looks irrational. Like, you know, I pitched them five times. We had three hour due diligence sessions. And this guy, he came in, he had a coffee with them and basically walked out with a commitment. That appears to happen sometimes, But it's important to note that the VC asset class will be a very small part of their total overall allocation. So it sort of doesn't matter how crazy they get. It's not going to blow up the portfolio. And that's the job of the head of the family office. 
When it comes to individuals that don't have an external family office that sort of make their own investment decisions, um, I find that they're much more willing to make a quick commitment and be very decisive about things they understand very well. If they're a tech founder um, and they founded two startups that are SaaS enterprise software and you come to them pitching a SaaS VC fund, they'll either get it or they'll think you're wrong. And so that'll be quite fast. You won't see as much of a rapid decision if you're pitching something outside their comfort zone. You know, if they're a doctor and you're pitching early hardware um, for your fund strategy, they may be less comfortable with that. There's another bit around portfolio strategy besides just an asset class, which is taxes. Um, how often do LPs actually make investment decisions based on specific tax treatments that they like to implement in their portfolios versus actually looking at um, a specific thesis? Um, very often. When I was at Adia, there were funds that were great funds. In fact, one of them was a fund that I used to be an investor at. Um, and we walked away from it because the post-tax returns didn't make sense. The fund manager was just not able to allocate a tax structure that made sense. Um, and so we walked away after the second meeting because it wasn't worth proceeding with the discussion. And, and for everyone else on the call, you know, the, the difference in this case was returns that are double digits going into the single digits. So something that's sort of 15, 20% net to LPs quickly turn to seven to nine uh, without the right tax treatment. So it can be the difference between a yes or a no. Um, I will say that tends to happen more with institutional investors and institutional investors that are not headquartered in your geography. Gotcha, because they know what the tax treatment is in a particular area. Uh, in, not to harp on that one example, but in general, um, the tax treatment for the fund, I know, um, uh, Joe on, in the chat mentioned qualified small business credits. Um, how, how much of that tax treatment can you achieve typically just by being thoughtful about your upfront structuring and how much of it is actually the underlying asset class that determines that, do you think? It's a combination. There's a lot of structuring you can do for offshore investors and for investors that are quasi-government entities. Um, and if you're fortunate enough to be talking to those kind of LPs, you can just ask them. They have an entire tax legal team. Like not just tax and not just lawyers. It's a subset of the legal team that just handles tax law. Um, and you can just ask them, what do you need? And they'll send you an email of like, this is a specific SPV structure that we require. Um, but that SPV structure only works for some asset classes. So it usually will not work for land rich asset classes. So if you're doing oil and gas investing, obviously that touches land that won't work. If you are doing a prop tech fund um, and you foresee some actual land holdings within the fund, as opposed to solely software, um, that may be difficult to achieve and the structure may eat some of the returns. But just ask your LPs, ask what they need. When in doubt, communicate. I love it. Um, well, that's our 15 minutes or so. Like I said, we try to do uh, fairly regular breakout rooms. We'll do the first one now. You will have a chance to answer more questions afterwards, but a uh, quick housekeeping thing. We don't do, uh, we don't blast everybody who's come here today. So if you find somebody that you want to connect with, swap details, but we do have a WhatsApp group. And we also send out a spreadsheet where you can add your own name voluntarily should you choose that you want to make it public. Um, the breakout room is going to be about 10 or so minutes. So uh, introduce yourself, discuss the topic that I was going to give 
um, in a smidge, and then we'll come back and you'll have a chance to ask uh, Luba some more uh, very fascinating questions. Ayla, what topic do we want to go with? So the first one is a little bit for everybody to share some drama, some LP drama that they've had in the past. What is the most interesting LP relationship, either positive or negative, that you've had uh, since you started your career in investing? So I'll pop you into rooms now. We'll see you guys all in about 10 minutes. Welcome back, folks. Hope you had a good uh, breakout room. We, uh, in ours, did not quite get to the topic. We spent the whole thing on cryptocurrency, which I think is the new, uh, the new norm, as it were. But we have a question that we'll ask um, Luba from Alan, which is for a small fund for, wow, that's, those aren't words, for a small fund, what would be your recommendation for the ideal calendar? When do you start talking to investors to try to close them, both for institutional or non, uh, to, to, to kind of maximize your efficiency? So I imagine that question is really trying to get at, okay, how long of a sales cycle is it to actually get that money in the door? How do you, how do you align everything up nicely? Good translation there, Kenny. Um, the sales cycle is long. Realistically, it's over a year. And part of the reason it's over a year is what I mentioned earlier about wanting to get a bite at the apple in both years. If you miss this year's allocation, uh, you know, Sequoia and Founders Fund went to the market this year uh, and they kept their effectively pro rata allocation in the new fund. They may not have a lot of allocation to the VC asset class left in this year. So you may have to wait till next year and they're not going to lower their commitment to Sequoia to accommodate you, however small your fund is. Um, the sales cycle is long. Um, you want to start as early as possible and you want to get as much feedback as possible. So I actually recommend going to potential investors without a deck, going as early as possible with the, I'm thinking about this. This is what I think the thesis will be. Does that sound plausible to you? And getting as much feedback as possible so that when you fully launch with a deck, with a team, the LP is not really surprised. They've been along for the ride as you've been building this out. And they're like, oh, that's right. You, you told me you'd do this. I gave you some feedback. You incorporated my feedback and now you're doing it. Great. You're someone who learns from reality on the ground and you're someone who does what they promise to do. Those are great things. And a fund manager, I feel reassured. So I guess a, a follow on to that, as it were, is... Um... That, that works if you have those warm intros already to investors where you can actually get that meeting without a deck, which I, I in my experience, most, most, most first-time managers just don't, right? They don't have those. So is that something you can uh, engineer, that type of relationship out of the cold? What does that look like? Uh, cold call to, yeah, I know you well enough that we're going to talk about our kid's birthday and I have this idea for a fun, but no deck right now. Um, so two things kind of come in play. Obviously, a warm intro is always better. And you'll be surprised how much you know um, and how many people you know. Quite often, you can find an intro to someone more junior at an LP. Um, and they may be interested in taking a meeting with you and showing you to their boss just to look proactive. of like, hey, I found a new potential future fund manager. Let's take a 20-minute call. And in many ways, that's actually gotten easier with Zoom because they don't have to sort of register you with the, the reception desk downstairs to bring you into the building to make a case why you should be there. They can just take a Zoom call with you um, and tell you what they think. Now, that also means that their opinion shouldn't be weighted as much because they don't have decision-making authority where they are, but it's useful to listen to a few data points and see if there's a pattern. Uh, don't do exactly what they tell you because you'll be swinging for the fences all the time, but chat to some people and see if a trend emerges. 
Um, the, the other thing you can do is widen your definition of what an acceptable investor is. You know, it isn't just Mabadla and the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund and Sapphire. Um, there are high net worth individuals who invest in funds. You'll be surprised, but a lot of startup founders, um, not even necessarily ones that are public, will, will do LP investing on the side. They might write smaller checks. They might write a commitment of 100K uh, spread over a three or five year fund term, but they'll know other LPs. And so it's useful to come chat to them. They've heard multiple pitches they're not going to make their individual commitment won't make or break your fund, but it'll give you momentum and it'll give you a little bit of advice. That's great. And um, how about we do, because we're 15 minutes left, another breakout room. Um, after the breakout room, we'll do a couple more questions and then make sure to stick around because we need to rename this event. So we would love your input. So uh, Isla, do you have a topic for our good audience here? Uh, what advice would you give yourself uh, before your first investment, before ever taking LP money for the very first time? What advice would you give your, your old self? Welcome back yet again. We'll do one or two questions and then we'll do a quick poll for the name of the, the, the thing that I've been trying to create a lot of suspense for, the renaming. Uh, not well. Luba, thank you, Stephanie. I really appreciate that. That was great. Um, Luba, I guess one of the questions that we, we prepped on was, you know, you have a consulting business as well as doing the syndicate. When should people get a investor release, like how big should you be? When does that become the most important thing for you to do? Like what, what's the ideal point for you to enter? Um, I kind of get onboarded at one of two times. Um, either we're thinking about raising money, um, come on board and help us productize all of that in, in sort of in advance. Like what should I pitch deck be? Let's work on the story together. I'm not sure I'm doing the financials correctly. Um, or actually get brought upon after something closes. And it's like, oh my God, I suddenly have 80 investors and I've sort of forgotten who half of them are and what do I do and why are they calling me? <laughs> and I always say, you can chat to me earlier, right? Now, honestly tell you, look, it just doesn't make sense for me to come on board at this point in time. Maybe your total assets under management are just too small and, and it doesn't make sense. Uh, maybe you've got a handle on it right now. Maybe you just need more data points from the industry. Will this even work? Uh, but you can always reach out, send me, send me an email, send me a LinkedIn and we can go from there. Love it. Um, and you mentioned that 80 investors is too many. I get it. Um, they're probably not shy of there. Is it is a number of investors that kind of determines when you need that investor relation help more than the AUM? So I'm guessing you have two investors with, you know, two billion under management might not need somebody externally to manage that. I don't know what are your thoughts on that. Um, number of investments is one of the input, but, you know, I single-handedly managed over 150 investors when I was at Palantir. I, as I said, I raised the Series J and the Series K at Palantir, which meant everyone from A to J was unknown to me when I joined. So I had to, like, get to know all these people and give them whatever they wanted while not giving them more than I was legally or kind of corporately allowed to. Um, there is definitely a way to make your investor relations more productized. And that's one of the things I do with my clients is who else is on your team? How can we spread this load? How can we make the product that you give your investors uh, easier to produce and easier to repeat every month? You shouldn't be doing sort of very custom things by hand 
for LPs unless they are a very significant LP. You know what? If like one of your LPs is Peter Thiel and he was 30% of your commitment fund one, yes, do the things he asks for as long as your lawyer okays it. Uh, but if you have someone that was under 10% of your fund uh, and you want to raise a larger fund next time and you think it's out of their financial ballpark, you have to think very quickly about how to create a situation where this person will still like you, this person will still say good things to other potential LPs when you raise your next fund, but they're not taking up more time than portfolio management is. I love it. Appreciate it. And with that, we got one minute left, so we'll do a quick poll. Uh, like I said, consume is a massive trademark violation, so we got to get off this. So we have four names we're going to give you. I'm going to hit launch polling, but maybe uh, hold off until I give you a little context. Uh, the first one is diffuse tap. Make all sorts of puns with that around what's on tap. The idea is kind of like a tap room. You come, you hang out, you talk to people, learn about what's interesting. Uh, discuss, diffuse discuss is similar, but it's part of a larger theme around do whatever. So we can have a diffuse digest. We can have uh, diffuse, I don't know, dialogue. You can you really play up the die. Diffuse symposium makes it sound a little bit fancy. And the diffuse con is kind of taking the consume, or the con from consume and uh, trying to keep it around. And it, uh, we're going for the Comic Con reference, less of the, you know, convicted felons sort of thing. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> we shall see. We shall see. All right. So there's your context. Pick and choose, pick and choose, which do you like the best? And while you're doing that, and because I know some of you are really agonizing over this decision, um, just as a what's up, what's up, oh goodness, up next, we have a WhatsApp group. I've already seen Isla has put it in the, uh, the, 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 the chat there. So join, introduce yourself, ask for something. You'll be surprised how quick people come back. Like I said before, we're funding a box. If you know anybody who's raising a fund or wants to raise a fund, we're your people. And then hopefully next week, we're working through some fun scheduling issues, but we're going to have some people come on who are going, who are creating a TV show where there's a fund behind it. And the TV show is kind of like one of those reality uh, elimination ones where the end winner of the TV show at the end of the season gets an equity investment from the fund. So it should be pretty interesting. All right. And on that, I'm going to end polling. I'm assuming everybody's had a chance who's going to vote, vote. Three, two, one, done. And thank you so much, Luba, for, for donating some of your time here. Really do appreciate your, uh, oh, Cabby's doing the claps. We'll do the clap. We'll jump along with it. <laughs> and um, yeah, with that, Isla, unless there was anything you wanted to touch on? No, I think we're all good. Thanks so much, Luba. And thank you everybody for showing up. And I will see you next week, Wednesday, for the last three sessions of the year. We're kind of closing in on it. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Diffuse Tap with Isla Krem and Kenny Estes. If you enjoyed these conversations, join us for the live version every Wednesday-ish at 10 a.m. Central. In addition to the fireside chat, the live event features three rounds of networking in small groups with alternative fund GPs, LPs, and supporters from around the world. Log on to www.diffusefunds.com to register yourself now.